0: Good morning. Welcome to Alpine Chapel. My name is Dave Mudd. I'm the lead pastor. If you're visiting with us, man, thanks for being here. Ton of college students, Trinity, Judson back today. Want to welcome them. Yeah, huge. Bunch of college students leaving. Want to celebrate their going. No, I'm just kidding. We're going to miss you all so much. Uh, I keep telling my kids, I keep counting down on the way here, I'm like, two more days. And I'm not counting that down because I'm excited for them to go back. We love having them home. I just want them to take advantage of these next few days, right? Like, live large. Not real large, but have fun. (laughs) But anyway, we are glad you're here. Um, Before I introduce our guest this morning, which I'm really excited about, can I take a few moments to say uh, a couple things? First of all, that yesterday was the one-year anniversary of the tragedy of hatred and racism in Charlottesville, North Carolina. And I bring that up to us today, one to remind us that a year ago, I set aside a Sunday morning message and we talked about racism. That is an evil in our world. Hatred has no place in the church on any level. And it reminds me of this, that every person, and you need to hear me this morning, every person your physical eye sees is deeply loved by God. Every person, no matter what race, what color, where they come from, God loves them so much. And so must we. And we don't know the level to which racism impacts us. And the moment you say you're not a racist, you can quickly identify yourself as one. Because it's really easy to ignore the things within us that exist while looking at the world and saying it's bad. And so as a church, we need to go on that journey to say, God Search my heart, and if there's anything in me that would not be of you, that would keep me from loving the world that I live in with unabandoned love, then show it to me so that I can deal with it. Because we need this to be a place where everybody's welcome, and God uses everybody's gift. And so, with that said, if you're here and you're saying, Man, I'd love to be part of a conversation like that of how do we begin to talk about the depth of that in our own lives, come and talk to me afterwards. Because I'd love to start building that kind of a culture where we can have the conversation and really go on that journey. The second thing is we have a church in our area that's hurting. And I want to pray for them today. Because we are a local representation of the bigger body of Christ. And Jesus is building his church. And we don't want any church to go through difficulty. That's not good for us. And so we need to pray for Willow Creek today. That God will continue to build that church the way he has been for the last 40 years, and that it is on God and Jesus to do that anyway. And so, Father, just in this moment, we take a few minutes to um, be saddened with and and grieve with um, just some of the difficulties that are being processed today in a church really close to us. And we pray for Willow Creek and its people, Lord, that um, they would receive deep down in the depths of their hearts and souls that the best for Willow is yet to come, because you're part of it. And it's your church that you're building, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so may they know and feel and sense today that the church around the world is praying for them. And we hate what they're going through, but we know you're in control. Our God will stand unshakable. And may we be the church that stands with you in that. And never, never, ever, ever stop hurting with those who hurt. And mourning and grieving with those who mourn and grieve. And may we learn to celebrate well those who celebrate. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel like a plane's going to take off in this room somewhere. <laughs> Anybody else hear that? This morning, um, incredibly excited to have uh, Richard Morris and his family, Val and Timothy and Marianne and Jonathan is over in France, I believe. And as, as he speaks today, if you want to know more about their ministry and what they're doing, you can grab a pamphlet off of the uh, Welcome Center. Uh would love for you to be praying for them. Uh, but Richard... Uh, as an American pastor, left America to go to France in 1992, I believe, right? Um, And God has been using him in France to talk with pastors and churches about spiritual warfare. Now, let me ask you this. How many of you today fear something? Raise your hand. Something you fear. That's pretty much all of us. And yet, as Christians, we don't need to be afraid, and so one of the things I love about Richard and how God is using him is he's helping us realize that we don't have to fear the enemy of our soul, that we have a God who is greater. And one of the way in which this can be described, and then I'm going to invite you to come, is you ever seen the movie The Wizard of Oz, right, where they get into the presence of the Oz and they're scared and they're fearful and it's booming and it's loud and there's smoke and they're freaked out. And then Toto runs and pulls the curtain aside, And the guy behind the curtain is saying, pay no attention to the man behind the curtain. That's what I believe the teaching today is going to do for many of us, that there is an enemy, but he's a little person behind a curtain. And we need to know how he works and operates, that our God is great and our God is strong. So Richard, would you come? Would you give him a warm welcome this morning as he comes?
1: Good morning. good morning. Just need to set myself up a little bit. Um, it is a privilege and an honor and a pleasure to be uh, sharing God's Word with you this morning. Um, I did very good in the first service. I didn't have one single French word in my English, so I'm going to try and do that again. Okay? So if you hear a French word, well, I'll try and correct myself. I would like to talk to you about a subject that's uh, something very important. Tell me what you fear, and I'll tell you what you believe. Yeah? Okay. I'm looking at the screen there that has it backwards for some reason. Did I get myself turned inside oh, out? Okay, forget it. Tell me what you fear, and I'll tell you what you believe. Right? Okay, good. Several years ago, I was invited to the French Caribbean island of Martinique to give a series of teachings on spiritual warfare and the activities of Satan and demons. One of the themes I was asked to teach on was fear. During the teaching on that subject, I, was, I asked everyone present to tell me what people on the island feared. To start the ball rolling, with her permission, I gave them a short list of things our daughter Mary Ann fears, or at least things she doesn't like seeing or being in the presence of. She graciously agreed to let me share with you this morning that list. Snakes, sharks, spiders, alligators, and there's some more. Is there anyone here who can identify with that list or things on that list, right? Right. Well, we're not going to talk about snakes and serpents and alligators. We're going to talk about two fears commonly found among believers. The first fear is of events or situations they can neither master nor control. What exactly is that event or situation is quite varied. But the common denominator is the lack of control believers feel or lose. That loss creates reactions that influence or control how they respond to the problem and its root cause. The second fear is the fear of not being loved by God. Some believers think they are not good enough to merit being loved. Others think they didn't do enough or didn't do good enough in order to be loved by God. Then there are those who believe that they will never be worthy enough to be loved. This church is like so many others then there are people listening to me who know what I'm talking about. They live with one of those fears. They are bound by it, and they suffer. To them, I say, it's okay, for in Jesus, you can find freedom from that fear. The disciples of Jesus once found themselves in a situation that caused them great fear. Their story is told in Mark chapter 6, verses 45 to 52, which we'll read together. We're starting with Jesus, who is uh, going to have his disciples get into the boat. We will put it up on the screen, if we can, please. And as I read... Jesus immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. After he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was alone on the land. He saw them straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the sea and wanted to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke with them and said, have courage, it is I, don't be afraid. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Despite the violent wind and the high waves, at no time did the disciples fear the storm. No doubt it was because they knew their lives weren't in danger. Several of them were professional fishermen, so rowing in the face of strong wind in the middle of the lake at night wasn't that much of a big deal. Sure, the waves were high, and the boat was being tossed about, but through experience, they knew that due to the lake's geographical situation, this type of weather occurred often. They had both the knowledge and the experience to handle without panicking <clears throat> such an event as this. But then this ghost shows up, and it's total panic on board. When wondering about why they were filled with fear, I reflected on all that they had experienced with Jesus prior to this encounter. For example, just earlier in chapter 6, Jesus had fed thousands with only five loaves of bread and two fish. The text says 5,000 men were fed, but as in those days only men were counted, we have no idea how many women and children were fed as well. That should have taught them something about Jesus and all he can do. Right from the beginning of the Gospel of Mark, we and the disciples see how demons, as well as fever, paralysis, and other illnesses left at Jesus' command. In chapter 4, Mark tells another story of a crossing of the lake. Because of the violent wind and waves, the disciples' boat was being swamped. Believing that they were about to die, they were filled with fear. In reality, Mark says they were terrified. Yet, with just a few words, the Lord Jesus calmed the wind, the waves, and the disciples'. Jesus was right there in the boat with them, yet they believed they were going to die. The disciples saw Jesus sleeping during the storm and wrongly interpreted that to mean he really didn't care about them. What the disciples were really saying to Jesus is, if you really loved us, then you would have woken up all by yourself and taken care of the storm, but you didn't. The disciples feared not just the storm. They truly feared that the Lord didn't really love them. Do you see how their fears revealed what they truly believed? This is why I say to Christians, we counsel, tell me what you fear and I'll tell you what you believe. As we read chapter 5 of Mark's gospel, we see that it opens with the disciples and Jesus arriving on the opposite shore of the lake. The dangerous passage is behind them. As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, a heavily demonized man runs up. In prior exorcism, only one demon was chased out. But here, several thousand are about to be... uh, Excuse me. Here, several thousand are about to come out of one man and all at the same time. When Jesus asked the demon who had already called out to him, what is your name? He answered, my name is Legion because we are many. In those days, the number of soldiers in a legion of the Roman army was anywhere from 5,000 to 6,000. That means either the demon is saying there are 6,000 of us in here, or we are many. While it is not possible to precisely determine the actual number of demons present, we get a clue from their number when they enter into a herd of around 2,000 pigs. That's still a lot of demons being chased out by the Lord Jesus. So, with all that they experienced, it's a bit surprising in chapter 6 that the disciples cried out at the sight of what they thought was a ghost. They just didn't cry out, hey, look, it's a ghost. They cried out in fear. It was late at night. They are tired from a long day and a difficult night. The only light came from lamps on the boat and maybe from the moon. Their boat was battered by the wind and the waves. Then unexpectedly, and in spite of the weather, they see walking on the water what they believe to be a ghost. And once again, they are filled with great fear. I believe a great part of their fear was due to the unexpected nature of the event. They weren't expecting it. They weren't counting upon it. And... Finally, it was something that exposed just how powerless they were to defend themselves. An initial reaction of fear is not necessarily a problem. It's a human reaction that can occur even to people experienced in dealing with the demonic manifestations. They're taken by surprise. They react with fear. Then they move past the fear into action. But when events and situations get out of control or when they hurt, not everyone moves past the fear. And it's that type of fear that I'm talking about today. It's that type of fear you need to bring to Jesus in order to find deliverance. The disciples' fear is due to more than just surprise. Their fear is also directly tied to what they interpret as being a ghost. That they were all afraid reveals that their fear is an expression of a deeply anchored belief common to all of them. Being curious as to why they were afraid of a ghost, I did some research into beliefs about ghosts in that time period. And I found an enlightening comment on ghosts written by a man named Joshua Mark in a book called The Ancient History Encyclopedia. I'm going to read you just a little bit. The appearance of ghosts of the departed, even those of loved ones, was rarely considered a welcome experience. No kidding, right? It's like, wow, what a surprise. The dead were supposed to remain in their own land and were not expected to cross back into the world of the living. When such an event did occur, it was a sure sign that something was terribly wrong. And those who experienced a spiritual encounter were expected to take care of the problem in order for the ghost to return to its proper place. So here you are, you've seen the ghost and you're the one who has to send them back. Good luck. If the disciples said to this supposed ghost, okay, be nice and go home, or hey, go away and leave us alone, I doubt that the ghost would have obeyed them. As they they were on a boat in the middle of the lake at night, there was no exit door they could run through. Due to the rough waters, swimming back to shore would be dangerous. Did one or more of them think that if only Jesus was here with them, he would have known what to do? However, they wrongly believed they were on their own. They wrongly believed that Jesus wasn't there with them, and so they were afraid. They believed they were powerless to do anything about the ghost, and so they let fear dominate them. The disciples were not simply overwhelmed by the event. They knew they were powerless to bring it to an end. What could they do against such a spiritual being? And how could they, mere mortals, send it back to the place where it came from? They controlled nothing. And that lack of control filled them with fear. I think you'll understand what I mean when I say that being in control of an event or a situation usually fills us, fills us with confidence. We believe we can deal with whatever comes our way. The problem comes when one day someone or something pulls the rug out from under our feet. It doesn't matter how the rug was pulled out or who pulled it, the problem is that we realize our weakness or powerlessness. That's not a comfortable place to be. Another element that led to the disciples being filled with fear was their own beliefs. Seeing what they believed to be a ghost, and we know in reading the text it wasn't, but they're still operating according to their belief system and that's important. Seeing what they believed to be a ghost, their beliefs about ghosts kicked in. It took over. They believed a ghost was so powerful that they could do nothing against it, and so they were paralyzed by fear. The shock and paralysis of fear caused them to forget all that Jesus had already done. Being dominated by fear, they no longer remembered all the time Jesus' presence, power, and authority took control over an impossible situation and brought deliverance and freedom. The power that could raise the dead, chase 6,000 demons. At one time, multiply a few pieces of bread and fish into a meal for 5,000 men and how many women and children was powerful enough to deal with any spiritual being. Jesus could control the situation, not the disciples. Yet the disciples never called upon that power, nor upon the one who wielded it. Their imperfect beliefs about Jesus prevented them from calling upon him for assistance and deliverance. In other words, they left Jesus out of the picture. Over the years, my wife Valerie and I have counseled many Christians who were dealing with fear. Some of them feared events that might happen to them. Others feared that past events would repeat themselves. We've dealt with believers suffering from panic attacks, as well as believers who were terrified at the thought that the abuse that they had suffered might happen again. We've listened to Christians who feared God would never love them nor accept them because of some fault or error they had committed or might commit. We found at work in their lives the same things that allowed fear to bind Jesus' disciples. We also found in our counseling one more thing that many believers do. Instead of seeking help from the Lord Jesus, they use their human strength and intelligence to develop strategies that would hopefully minimize their powerlessness or enable them to cope with their problems. Now, that's not bad, but there's something missing. Because in most cases, those strategies did not permanently eliminate their fears. They, like the disciples, are stuck in a boat in the middle of the lake, and who will come to deliver them? What I I am about to say is I know a little simplified But when you're stuck in a boat in the middle of a lake, there are two choices you can make. One, you can continue letting fear dominate you. Or two, you can call upon Jesus in order to be delivered. You can call upon Jesus to get into your boat. Did you know that the commandment the most often given by Jesus was fear not? According to one person's count, the direct commandment to fear not is given more than 80 times in the Bible. That's both Old and New Testaments combined, which probably means we're a fearful people and we need to hear it from him. Fear can be irrational, terrifying, or paralyzing. We fear what we cannot control as well as fearing people or spirits that can hurt us. Some people fear the future. For college students, what's going to happen to me afterwards? Will I find a job? Sometimes it's just the unknown that creates fear. Others fear poverty, being abused, illness. Some fear death or even just unemployment. As we saw, even the disciples of Jesus were at times filled with fear. Fear is something all humans have to deal with. The big question for the disciples was how they were to deal with that fear and its cause. It's the same question for us. What both we today and the disciples then need to understand is that when Jesus says, fear not, He is actually saying, fear not, I am here with you. You are not alone in the boat. But do you know it? The second fear I want to talk about is fear of being rejected or unloved by God. Many believers live fruitless, frustrating lives as they try to make God love them. Others fear that one day God will reject them. Such beliefs bring neither peace nor security. The joy of the Lord, the joy of being a child of God is absent. Many times Valerie and I have found that the real problem lay not with God, but with what the believer believes about God, and about themselves. Scripture is very clear about how God sees us and calls us. But believers, for one reason or another, don't always believe what Scripture teaches. It's sad to see some efforts believers make in order to force God to love them. When I was working in Benin before I went to France, one of my missionary co-workers actually decided to become a missionary in a difficult mission field in order to force God to love her. Her fear of being unloved by God had taken her to Benin. Sadly, she failed miserably in her endeavor. She left the country even more convinced that God didn't love her. If only she had accepted and believed what God said about her and how God saw her. If that had been the case, if she had only believed it, she would have never have gone to such extremes. She would have never had to go to such extremes. Because God already loved her. When we work with believers who fear being rejected by God or that God can never love them, we have them do a simple exercise. Now don't be misled by the word simple, for simple truths can be quite powerful. This exercise consists of four words. We give them in a random order And then ask the person we are helping to place them in a specific order. They are not allowed to add in any other words, nor modify the words we give them. The first word they select of the four words is the one they believe is the basis of their relationship with God. The second word they choose comes out of the first word. Because X, then Y. The third word is the logical consequence or progression from the second word. So you have the first word, it goes to the second word, which leads into the third word. Easy, right? The fourth and final word is the end result. What they are seeking to obtain or experience in their relationship with God. We tell them to place the words in the order that expresses their perception of other relationship with God what does God expect of them and what are they looking to live or obtain in that relationship we also tell them as well that for the I'm sorry let me say that more clearly we also tell them as well that for the exercise to be effective they have to be very honest with themselves to truly understand the impact of this exercise and what it, re- what it reveals about your own beliefs, we're all going to do it right now. This exercise is for everyone. Yesterday, I had the elders do it and we had a lot of fun doing it. So fear not, this test is fun, it's good, but it's gonna teach you something about what you believe. So fear not, okay? And even if you don't fear being rejected by God, I want you to do the exercise with everyone else as you just might be surprised by the results. And you don't lose anything by doing it. You might actually gain something. So it's worth doing. Now, in a minute, I will give you the four words. And when I do, you can write them down. If you've got a smartphone, you know, pull out memo, write them down. And then, or take a piece of paper from in front of you. And you're going to write out your word order. You're going to write out your first word, second, third. And while you do it, don't talk to anyone around you. Okay, now we just heard about couples and marriage, but I do not want uh, husbands and wives coordinating their effort here. Okay? This is a very personal exercise. And don't worry about your word order. We're not going to ask you to share it with anyone. It's personal, it's private. Okay, you got stuff to write down? Let's put up on the screen, please, the four words. Service, love, obedience, and approval. What you see on the screen is not the word order that I want you to copy. Those are the random order that you are now going to take time to create your word order with. Of the four words... Which one do you believe comes first in your relationship with God? This word should express what you believe is the basis for that relationship. And then which words come second and third? And finally, which word in fourth place expresses what you seek or hope to obtain or live with God? Okay, easy, right? So go ahead, if you haven't started, go ahead and do it now. We're going to wait. Don't think it over Just let it come naturally and I will wait until I make sure everyone's got it done. See, there's still a few more people working, so we'll just take the time you need. It's a good thing there's not 20 words, right? Four is good enough. Is there someone who's not done yet? You doing okay? Okay, let's go on then. Okay, you don't tell me your list, right? When we study the word of God, we discovered that God has his own word order. Now that you've made your word order, I'm going to show you the Lord's. The order will will reveal to all of us how God sees each and every one of us, what God believes about each and every one of us, and what he wants each and every one of us to know and live. There's no one here who can say, yeah, but that doesn't apply to me. It concerns every one of us. The first word in God's order, is love. That love is the basis of our relationship with God. And that is made very clear in John chapter 3, verse 16. To help you see that, we're going to read this verse. Now, we're going to put it up on the screen. For for God so loved the world that he gave his his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. I think almost all of us know the verse. But we're going to change it. Because the problem is, whenever you read the words world or whoever, you don't know who they are. And so what you're going to do is every time you see the word world or whoever, you are going to put your first name there. And to make it even more personal, you're going to say it out loud with me. For example, instead of saying, for God so loved the world, I'm going to say, for God so loved Richard. Now, because you're not all named Richard, please do not repeat after me. (laughs) Got it? I mean, it is true. Thank you for telling me that, okay? But I know it already. But I want to make sure you know it. So you're going to put your first name. Got it? For world and whoever, you put in your first name. Let's do it. Just say it out loud. For God so loved Richard that he gave his one and only son, that Richard believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. God loves you. What did we just do? What did you just experience firsthand? What I see is that we just experienced and proved firsthand God's personal love for each each and every one of us. For who is the world? It's every one of us with no exceptions. God's love for you is the beginning of your relationship with him. The second word in God's list, the one that springs out of his love is approval. In Romans 8, verse 1, we read, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God loves you, and so he approves of you. And actually, the the more biblical term for approval is adoption. Through faith in Christ, God adopts us as his children and makes us his own. He approves of what we have become. That said, I have to warn you that to be able to say that God loves me and I feel that love and I improved, you first have to turn to Jesus in faith for your salvation. If you have not yet accepted Christ as Savior and said he has died for my sins, you're still in the boat all by yourself. And that's a dangerous place to be. You have to first, to accept God's love, come to the cross and accept Jesus. And that's where God's love enters your life. And that's where God approves you because there is now no condemnation for those in Christ. You have to get in Christ first. And for that, you've got to get in the same boat with him. I want to point out one other thing before we get to the third word. In God's word order, God has just shown you his love and approval. But what did you do to earn it or to merit it or to receive that love and approval? What did you do? Absolutely nothing except believe in Christ for your salvation and receive God's love. That's all you've done. That's all you have to do. God's love is given, not earned. It is received, not deserved. The third word in God's word order is obedience. Knowing that God loves me and approves, I commit myself. obeying him. This is our first response besides faith. This is our first response to God's work in Christ. This is where the faith becomes action. My obedience to God is therefore the expression of his love for me that I believe and I accept and then my love for him. And why do I say that our obedience comes from our love for God? Because of these words of the Lord Jesus in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verse 15 If you love me, you will keep my commend- commandments. Pay attention there. Jesus did not say, Well, if you keep my commandments, then okay, I'll like, oh, okay, yeah, I'll love you. Or he doesn't say, Well, maybe I'll love you, or today and not tomorrow. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So obedience is the expression of our love. Obedience to all that God and his son command us to do is, therefore, never a means to an end. Our obedience will never make God start loving us. It can't because he already loves us. Even before we started obeying. Think about that. You haven't done anything yet but believe, and God loves you already just the way you are. The fourth and final word is, therefore, obviously, service. Service to and for God is the ultimate outcome, the expression that, that of all that has come before. Because I love God in return for his love for me, I obey his commandments, and his commandments lead me to serve him, his church, and my fellow believers. Service, then, comes out of love. Service is not a means to become loved. Service rightly understood. And placed in the right word order. Is an expression of love. That creates joy in our relationship with God. And with fellow believers. We do not serve. So that God loves us. We serve. Because God loves us. And that changes so much. So what is your Word order. Are you aligned with what God himself has done in order to show you his love and to give you a relationship filled with love? Having the four words in the right order, in God's order, is a game changer. And no, that's not true. It's a life changer. Aligning your beliefs about God loving you with his word order And then living accordingly will take away all fear of being rejected by him or not being loved by him. You don't have to do more to be loved. You just have to accept that he loves you. If you've been touched by these words... If you are stuck in the middle of the lake because of fear or have trouble believing that God truly loves you, then I have good news for you. In Christ, you can be freed from that fear. All you need to do is to come to Jesus and let him enter into your situation and into your life. You need to be in the same boat with Jesus and know it. Let him bring the power, authority, and love into the event that creates fear in you. Hear him say to you right now, today, fear not, I am here with you. We're in the same boat, we're together. Accept it and believe it and live it. Come to him. Tell him what caused you to fear. And let him lead you to the shore where his peace awaits you. I'd like Dave to take over right now.
0: Can we say a huge thank you to Richard this morning. <clears throat> Richard, thank you. Can I invite everybody to stand I'm not going to ask who got it wrong. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. Because there's way more focus that needs to be on the right order. But let me just say to you this. Had I done this a couple years ago, I would have got it wrong. Because for me, obedience always came before approval. And I know a lot of us in this room put obedience before approval. And that equates to religion. Religion. And you can't be free when you're just bound by religion. And so when we get this right and understand the power we have in Jesus, we will not fear. And God will use us greater than he already does. If you're here this morning and you're walking through a paralyzing fear that's causing you not to see who Jesus is, then there will be people up front to pray with you. Because we believe that he who the Son sets free is free. And that's from fear as well. And that we can be free. And we don't want you to live a faith that isn't free. Because the faith in God and in Christ is freedom. And so we'll be here to pray with you. The rest of us, let's process that order. And let's think and pray through that and help God to, to give us the strength and power and wisdom to live into that. That we would love him because we're his. And that out of that we'll obey. And out of obedience we'll serve like none other. God, thank you for this church and thank you for all that you're doing in us. Let today just be an obvious opportunity for us to love you more because we've been loved with the overwhelming love of heaven. And let that trickle into the lives of those we meet. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you. Have a great week. There'll be people here to pray.